RDD ECMO, Zach Shiner. It is February 2020. Last month you heard from Jason Bardos. You heard about the stuff that they're doing in Minnesota. Their outcomes are amazing. They're taking patients directly to the cath lab. They're doing things right. They're owning the patients in the cath lab. And now we are going to get into two aspects that are just awesome. So, Jason, we're going to talk about post-pump initiation. We're going to talk about how you manage the nuts and bolts of ECMO patients after you get them on. Jason's papers are full of these pearls. I encourage you to just dig through his papers because they're so good. And then, and then at the end of this podcast, we're going to get into stuff that's going to blow your mind of what not only are they thinking about doing, they have already done. They're already in the process of doing here in Minneapolis, changing how we manage cardiac arrest all over the world. Jason Bardos, Dimitrianopolis, University of Minnesota. Let's get back into it. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. Okay, I want to take a step back, though, because there's something here that I've been trying to wrap my mind around for years now, and that is how you don't have these, don't have high populations of cardiogenic shock, how you don't get these death spirals. I mean, when, I know when Dimitri came out here for reanimate, he presented at Sharp and I, I think he said, well, we just, we don't have that. We don't vent patients. And there was like this gasp in the room. Um, so I, I don't know what it is. I, I, I can make some conjectures. I can conjecture that the early cardiac cath may add to it. The fact that you... Uh, are so good at uh, at getting these vessels open and getting them on ECMO uh, quickly might add to it. But do you do you think that there is something di- fundamentally different about how you manage these patients that allows you to not have this severe uh, cardiogenic shock or vasoplegia after arrest? So I think you bring up multiple good points. I think there are multiple aspects to this. First is if you're thinking about the the STEMI portion of this or the, the coronary disease portion of this, when in the cases where these cardiac arrests are initiated by coronary occlusion, which is the majority of the cases, this they get attention and medical care for their STEMI faster than any other STEMI patient on the planet. And the reason is that every patient who has a STEMI at home, at least, or in a public place, is going to take a few minutes to try to figure out what their symptoms are are, um, are caused by. Many of them try to convince themselves that it's not their heart. And there's going to be a time lag between that and when they initiate 911 and EMS uh, assistance. These people, their, their symptom, their first symptom, 201, none of them have told us afterwards that they felt chest pain. Now, granted, you have some retrograde amnesia, so they may, be, may forget things about the few minutes or even a day or two before. But Classically, and their family tells us too, they don't have symptoms before they uh, go down. So they're going down, getting medical attention as quickly as everybody can can cause or can bring it. And they're coming straight to the hospital, getting their ECMO, and then getting their revascularization. So their treatment for their STEMI is lightning fast compared to, to most STEMIs. We don't have a 90-minute door-to-balloon time. We have a six-minute door-to-ECMO time and then another probably 10 to 15-minute uh, corneal angiogram and, and at least initial reperfusion time. So they're getting very rapid attention for their stomach. That, that said, 
Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no I, that's just such a cool concept, right? Their 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 symptom to cath time is you know forty five minutes. <laughs> symptom to balloon occlusion and open uh, uh, of their coronary is you know less than the time it would take for most people to even get their cath in in a STEMI. That's exactly right. So these these people are treated in a very special way with regard to their coronary disease. Of course, they have other injuries. Uh, but it's it's very special when you just consider the coronary disease. Now, that said, in addition, they're getting the support provided by ECMO. So if you take your average patient who has a cardiac arrest and they're resuscitated and they start to develop post-cardiac arrest syndrome um, and vasoplegia, they're, at least from what we see, that typically happens in the first few hours. Uh, these patients have an extra four to five liters of flow to support them. So they do develop vasoplegia. We do see that and we do need to give them some pressors. Uh, but with that extra four to five liters of flow on top of what their heart uh, can muster, which may not be much, but it's a little, uh, we are able to stave off the hemodynamic collapse. Now, many of our patients do receive balloon pumps as well. Um, those balloon pumps are there really for two things. One is to perfuse the coronaries, and that's probably the most important role. Uh, for those balloon pumps, and that that is perfusing coronaries that have that are of severe disease that we have possibly just stented, um, and really augmenting that diastolic pressure so they they receive more flow. The second thing is a small effect on cardiac output, so they can also augment the blood pressure and and get maybe another half liter of cardiac output to support them. So the it in many of our patients, almost half of our patients. Uh, they do have that additionally small amount of cardiac output support in addition to the coronary support, which may aid cardiac recovery and, and prevent some of the issues with stunning and, uh, and poor perfusion in the post-cardiac arrest phase. Hmm. Okay, I have one other conjecture on how you have such amazing uh, ability to stave off this. The, the time also to your distal perfusion catheter of your leg is probably faster than any other place in the world. Would you say that's correct? I, not knowing how every other place does it, I can't compare, but it is quite fast. I will say it's, it's before they leave the cath lab. So you're looking at between two and four hours, depending on the severity of their coronary disease. Mm. So in that sense, the reperfusion injury, which might be you know, somewhat due to the muscle mass and, and these apoptotic cytokines that come back to the heart, uh, if you can get that thing in faster. Now, actually, the, I'm just thinking this out loud. Paris does it very fast as well because they put the catheter in immediately. However, their delay to cath lab time is, is significant. Uh, but I think that that might actually have a, 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 a role in this as well. It's an interesting concept, absolutely. I mean, the, the fact that we are reperfusing with very robust reperfusion the lower extremities, which in the setting of multiple doses of epinephrine are probably uh, quite ischemic at the time they arrive to us. It, it's an interesting uh, concept. I think it's something that could definitely be tested going forward. Uh, it may be very uh, useful in the treatment of these patients. Okay, uh, a couple more things here. We in your paper you talked about EFs, the initial EFs. They've even your survivors and your non-survivors. They were pretty close, right? They went up from maybe ten, twenty percent on the first day, and then by day four or five they were back to normal. Exactly. The, the majority of people, even those those who survive and those who don't, uh, recover their heart function typically within a week. 
uh, where it sort of starts to plateau. Uh, but we're seeing significant improvements between days three and five, which allows us to to decannulate them from the ECMO circuit um, on average in that sort of three to five day time window. Uh, the other interesting th- part with that it, it, that you brought up was the thickness of the ventricle uh, as as being one of the determining factors on whether they ultimately survived or not. Yeah, so in our most recent paper, uh, just published this month, it's really capitalizing on the benefits we have of using our selection criteria and also the post-arrest care. And by that, I mean that, you know, that blood gas you mentioned that we get for every patient when they arrive, we're able to look at that data across the spectrum of, of durations of CPR and look at the effects of uh, those metabolic derangements on their outcome. In addition, as you mentioned, the thickness of the left ventricle uh, seems to correlate quite nicely. And the, the idea behind this is the sort of concept of ischemic contracture. This comes about from an idea of why can't CPR go on forever? And why can't we do, why would the, the survival drop with high quality CPR um, if you uh, do CPR for two hours with high quality uh, why can't we get all of those folks back as well when we have such support from the ECMO and the post-cardiac arrest syndrome, um, uh, path of care here that we have? The idea is that really what has no, been known for a long time is, number one, we're not replacing 100% of normal cardiac output. It's closer to 25%. And what we're seeing over time is that we're exhausting the energy stores of the heart as well as other tissues. But the heart that has some amount of oxygen bound to myoglobin is slowly using that to replace the cardiac output that is not supplied by CPR. And around the 30-minute mark, which correlates very closely with what we see in animal studies, we start to see a sudden change in survival. So why would we have 100% survival all the way up to 30 minutes and then it drops off? Possibly because the heart has stores of oxygen and ATP that will last about 30 minutes, at which point you start to exhaust those stores and changes start to happen. Now, the first thing that happens to a heart that's getting ischemic is it becomes diastolically dysfunctional. It becomes stiff. Now, you can see that hemodynamically early on, but one of the later manifestations of that is thickening of the ventricular wall, and eventually, if that progresses to the end stage, it becomes stone heart or uh, contracture and basically rigor mortis of the heart. So what we see in our study, looking at the very first echo we did in all of our patients, is that we can actually observe slight thickening of the lateral wall of the left ventricle over time. Why is the lateral wall important? It's because it's the least involved wall from coronary disease. So you might imagine that if somebody has an LED infarct, that that area is going to be thickened because of the infarct, which is true. Uh, we do see that as well. But the lateral wall is the, is the area that tends to be less involved with infarction and allowed us to have the best measure across all the patients uh, with time. So what we see, with again, with extending durations of CPR is our lactic acids are climbing, our pHs are dropping, but they don't do much of, an, of a change until you hit that 30 to 40 minute window. Suddenly the lactates start to jump, the pHs start to fall quite precipitously, and now your left ventricle is starting to thicken. All of this coming back to that mechanism of why this timing is so important. Hmm. So cool. Yeah, I was looking at those numbers and thinking, well, could I just throw a bedside echo on and, and see? And it was like a it's like a millimeter difference between the 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 thicknesses, even though it's statistically significant. I was like, I don't I don't think I'm going to be able to get that precise on on these echoes. 
No, I would not use it for prognostication purposes for exactly that reason. It is very precise and it's, I would say, clinically insignificant, even though it is statistically significant. Significant. The bigger thing uh, that we were using that data to, to suggest is that it gets back to that mechanism as to why we see decreases in, uh, in survival and the worsening metabolic states. The importance of that, while it gives you a sense of you know, why this may be happening, if you have treatments that can prevent that progression, we may be able to extend the duration of CPR. And that's the really exciting idea for me going forward is now that we can supply ECMO at these timeframes, and granted, we are very much working on getting the ECMO to patients earlier and earlier so we can capitalize on that 30-minute window if possible. But even in those patients where we can't, we would really like to be able to still give them a great survival benefit. And how do we do that? We somehow increase the benefits of the, the ECMO, or sorry, of the CPR, we give them up to the point of ECMO. We try to extend our survival curve to the right and get people to survive better at even longer durations of CPR with various techniques, many of them still in animal studies only, but to try to, to improve the quality of CPR even further uh, and deliver a healthier patient at the time they reach for us the cath lab. So, okay, amazing stuff there. Now, we talked, one of the things that also comes up in your paper is you have these uh, high troponins that are associated with death, high glucose, high troponin associated with death. Now, what's interesting to me is that the EFs come back on these patients, but somehow the troponins are prognosticate. What are your thoughts on that? It's a great question. I think what we're seeing is the difference between global injury and focal injury. So as we think about STEMIs, people have a, a troponin of 50 and it's a dramatic STEMI. Uh, these people are having troponins, and for all transparency, our test here at the University of Minnesota for troponin maxes out at 200. Our curve for those who develop brain death, the patients that are theoretically the most injured patients, uh, those people have a troponin that maxes out around, on average, 200. So they are really tipping the scales at the, at the highest troponin because of the global injury to their heart uh, that came about from the, the prolonged CPR and perhaps for whatever reason, an inefficiency in their CPR to, to supply adequate perfusion. Those people, if you look at the ejection fraction uh, graph in that study, those people with brain death actually only have the one or two points in the earliest phases. So while they do have, the people who survive have some recovery you're not able to, to test them out uh, to the full week like we would with the other patients. Now, if you compare patients who die of other things other than brain death and people who uh, survive, they actually have very comparable ejection fraction recovery. They also have very comparable troponin levels. So those people have been presumably less injured by their arrest um, and uh, have a better recovery in general because of that initial injury being less severe. Mm, yeah. Makes sense. All right, a couple other things. You had uh, infection is just, just a given. You're going to get an infection. Start them on antibiotics and don't let it dissuade you from the, the ability for them to survive. Is that a good take home from there? That's exactly right. We uh, give all of our patients broad-spectrum antibiotics for the first five days of their care with the idea that we're treating aspiration pneumonia. And if you look at the rates of infections, uh, as defined by imaging findings, as well as sputum cultures with uh, pos positive for bacteria, um, we have aspiration pneumonia or pneumonias 
uh, in about 50% of our patients. So it is a high rate uh, of infection and it is predominantly pneumonia and it's predominantly pneumonia caused by bacteria that you would expect for aspiration pneumonia. So it all uh, makes sense. The bacteremias, things that you might worry about with rapid initiation of ECMO in a semi-sterile setting, um, they are actually quite low. So bacteremia is very low. Um, UTIs and things that you just have in the ICU um, rarely, but you do have, um, are also rarely present in these patients. The, by and large, the largest infection is pneumonia. And we do, again, treat them all with antibiotics, but still uh, we have uh, positive cultures and imaging findings in these people. So uh, they do fall into that category. Yeah, I noticed that you no, you said daily blood cultures were drawn for this exact reason. This is exactly right. So we choose to draw blood cultures every day because we worry that the semi-sterile conditions of the emergent ECMO placement could cause a problem. We have not seen that, but we continue to do daily blood cultures even now. There's also, because all of these patients are receiving uh, therapeutic hypothermia, targeting generally 34 degrees, uh, we worry that we could be masking fevers and also perhaps increase their susceptibility to infection. We have not really seen that either, um, other than the pneumonias, which again um, are understandable from the, the conditions of an hour of CPR, many of which have a supraglottic airway uh, in place during that time. Okay, so supraglottic airway. This brings up uh, another question I want to ask you, I want to get your, your thoughts on. There's been a move towards not intubating cardiac arrest patients to give them 10 minutes of, you know, a, a bag mag, or bag valve mask or just simply a non-rebreather mask. In your paper, the end-tidal CO2, the, the carbon dioxide levels, the PaO2, these are all critically important to you when you get them in the cath lab. What are your thoughts on that movement in the eCPR population? You know, I think you bring up an excellent point. And this point is that the moves that have been made in the world of cardiac arrest have all been meant to improve care for people who are going to get ROSC in the first five to 10 minutes of CPR. Meaning that if you're going to do a trial today in the general cardiac arrest population, comparing supraglottic airways to endotracheal intubation, the patients you're going to be testing will be all cardiac arrests, but the people who are going to survive are all going to have come back in that first zero to 15 minute time period, or at least the vast majority. So what we don't know in the world of cardiac arrest is what do you need to do if you're gonna do CPR now for an hour with a real chance to survive at the end, which is what ECMO is providing. And that may mean that we have to reconfigure our thoughts on these things. We don't know. We very much do not know the answer to these questions. And the tricky issue with airway is that it's a balance. So it's a balance of the time that it takes to get the airway in with the efficacy of the airway. If you can get a patient in within 30 minutes, I would argue that the airway is probably much less of, of an issue in that patient than if you're going to bring a patient in at one hour. And so if you optimize your time or your, your process to get the time down quite low, then your airway probably doesn't matter. It's possible, though, when you have an average CPR time of an hour like we do, that endotracheal intubation may actually be better. And as you said, the O2, the PAO2s are a critical component of our selection criteria. If people are hypoxic because they aspirated and couldn't be ventilated or oxygenated by anybody, then they're going to have a low PAO2 and they're not going to make it to ECMO. If they 
just fail because their chest compressions are working against their supraglottic airway and they're not ventilating very well, then they may have a very low pH, but actually by our criteria, we would still put them on ECMO. So the, the balance of the, the airway um, and the time it takes, again, the, the guideline for this is basically do what you're good at to minimize the amount of time it takes to do whatever you need to do to, to have an airway. Um, that may still be the most reasonable guideline in this patient population as long as you're fast. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think I have an opinion. Uh, I don't know if it's the right opinion. But, uh, but whether it's supraglottic or endotracheal, I mean, I don't care. But the, those two therapies versus a uh, non-rebreather mask, I think if you want to have a cardiac arrest survivorship that's around, you know, 10% as the, as the nation goes, then it probably doesn't matter if you put on the non-rebreather mask. But if you want to have a, a survival that's going to be 50% and you're going to be running arrest for an hour and you have the capability of doing it, you should get an airway as soon as you possibly can. I agree that I think our patient, all of our patients have an airway so that we can't make any statement about non-rebreather masks or even vague valve masks. They all have a supraglottic or an endotracheal tube. I think passive uh, sort of respiration via non-rebreather in the setting of CPR is um, incredibly untested uh, in longer duration of CPR, even after a few minutes. And I think I would be very concerned that you're not going to have enough ventilation or oxygenation um, certainly in that 30 to 60 minute window, which is where these patients are predominantly uh, getting to at least our center. And again, if, if it's an arrest in the ED where you can rapidly deploy ECMO, maybe it's a different story. Uh, but when you're coming from an out-of-hospital arrest, I think you do need some reliable ability to ventilate and oxygenate. Hmm. All right, Jason, last question here. Can you tell us about Minneapolis and pre-hospital ECMO? Yeah, so this is exciting. So you look at our the paper that I was talking about where you know if you can get to ECMO within 30 minutes, you can have 100% survival. Now, again, it's not going to be 100% forever, but so far it has been. The earlier we can deliver that ECMO, the better. Now, we would love to be able to take it to the patient's doorstep, but for us, it's very important to have a sustainable system that's available 24-7. And for us to do that, we need to, at least in the early stages, focus it in locations that are more closely related to the patients, but are not logistically possible to be in their living room. So we have rolled out a program in the last couple months to move our resources and our expertise in our team closer to the patients and meet them essentially halfway. We've done this uh, by localizing resources and logistical support in multiple EDs. We actually have two EDs right now um, that are about 20 minutes away, 15 to 20 minutes away from our center here at the University of Minnesota. We travel to those centers and have the EMS services meet us in those emergency departments where we now place the ECMO. Uh, that has expanded our range considerably. Uh, we are now covering a much larger portion of uh, central Minnesota, including a little bit of western Wisconsin with that range. Um, and we've had a, a lot of patients in just the last two months, month and a half, um, that have come in through that pathway. We are in the process of building a vehicle with great support uh, from the Helmsley Charitable Trust. Uh, we are building a vehicle to roll out to uh, the patients even closer 
possibly at other smaller hospitals nearby patients or even in the future, we would love to be able to either meet the EMS crew halfway uh, in a grocery store parking lot or uh, in the side of the highway, bring them into our vehicle and put them on ECMO. But again, for us, we really want to make sure that we're sustainable and that we're going to be providing these services uh, to as large of a portion of the Minnesota uh, population as we can. And so at this point, uh, this is the strategy we've taken. There are a lot of approaches out there, a lot of ways to, to go about this. And it's exciting and everything about ECMO and eCPR is exciting and the growth that it's it's undertaken, the, the different groups out there that are really working with it. I think there are going to be some great innovations from across the country that we can uh, really look at. Uh, but this has been our approach in our population that we think we can reach the largest number of people uh, in the most sustainable and long-term way. Now, let me just clarify one last thing you just mentioned there. Meet them in a grocery store and in that vehicle, you're going to have a cath lab? Yeah, so the vehicle we're building is basically a mobile emergency department with a cath lab in the back. Unbelievable. So we have fluoride that is currently going out to emergency departments around the Twin Cities. Now, you know, it, it, in, the, in the cath lab, when we place people on ECBO, we have 10 to 15 people that are there to support us. Uh, from pharmacists to respiratory therapists, perfusionists, and our cath lab staff. We're not going to have that in the back of that truck. We're going to have a very streamlined team who are all good multitaskers, able to take on all of those roles uh, to treat the patient. But, but the job of that truck will be to bring the resources and the expertise as close to the patient as we can to extend our reach as far and to trim that time to ECMO as far down as we can um, and bring all the resources we need for ECMO. It won't necessarily be to deliver a full cath lab that can do the coronary angiography and PCI. Those resources will still in all likelihood be performed or delivered um, at a hospital, but we'll be able to get people on ECMO well perfused and stabilized in route to get them the cardiac care that they need for their coronaries. So awesome. All right, Jason, you and Dimitri are changing the world. I already said that. I really believe that to be true. Cardiac arrest is not going to be the same as a result of the program that you guys have built. Is there anything else that you can, any other pearls of wisdom that, that you can share with us? When I think the, it, just to reemphasize a point, I think we've talked about a lot and I really appreciate your thorough uh, look at the papers and, and our program. Uh, I will just reiterate, I think that it really takes the entire chain. And if, if we had um, developed this program without the great cooperation of all of our partners in EMS and without the ability to take care of these patients in the ICU, it would have failed miserably. And I think we need, we have capitalized on all of those great and well-intentioned and thoughtful people that are in all of those roles. And I would highly encourage anybody who's thinking about developing these programs uh, to be able to do the same thing, to really bring all those resources and all those people to bear to, to really help these patients as much as possible uh, and really bring up the survival rate as much as we can. I'm hopeful that someday we'll be talking about a survival rate of 60 to 70% for refractory VF at least, um, but we've got a ways to go to get there. So it's going to take all the, the brilliance and the creativity of everybody across this nation to make that happen. Hmm. All right. Idi Ekmo, Jason Bardos, Zach Shiner, thanks for joining us.